You're a brand new nonprofit CEO. It's exciting. You feel a sense of privilege, totally ready to overachieve because, well, that's just who you are. Of course, you have those butterflies and maybe a dose of imposter syndrome that comes and goes. But in your heart, you know you've got this. At least you're pretty sure. Now, imagine that you move cross-country by yourself. Your son will stay on the West Coast to finish high school. Your wife will follow in a few months. A lot of sacrifices for that dreamy gig. You've done a lot of prep work so you can hit the ground running. You've plotted out your first week. You have a plan for the board meeting on the week and the evening of day two and a draft of remarks for one of the organization's biggest fundraisers. Then that gala was coming up on Saturday night, day six of the job. You are ready. On that first morning, you plant yourself at the front door and you greet and appreciate as many of the staff of 600 as you can. Being there, meeting the staff, seeing the work, it's kind of thrilling. And it turns out that the first day on your job is the last day you can shake anyone's hands. Your professional life has changed forever. The personal lives of everyone in your organization's orbit have changed forever. You've arrived to a pandemic and you run a federally qualified community health center with a patient population of more than 33,000 people. Shall we talk about that? Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary. In my work, I offer counsel and advice to CEOs and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a keynote speaker, an author of a best-selling book with a very novel name, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, and I'm a columnist for the Chronicle of Philanthropy. I'm also the co-founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, an online membership site where we help small nonprofits thrive. But most of all, I consider myself a compassionate truth teller and a champion for board and staff leaders. In my podcast, I dig deep into the issues faced by nonprofit leaders. You can always count on getting my personal point of view, and you can count on experts who will share their expertise in fields ranging from fundraising to leadership transitions, to team building, to board management, to organizational strategy, to self-care. The list goes on. So welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Let's get started. Ellen LaPointe is the Chief Executive Officer of Fenway Health, and she's been there for about five minutes. No, she's been there all of about six weeks. LaPointe has held numerous leadership roles in the nonprofit and public health sectors, working in social justice, research, LGBTQ and HIV activism and advocacy, health policy, law, and equity over the last three decades. Prior to joining Fenway, she was president and chief executive officer of Northern California Grant Makers in San Francisco, a nonprofit that brings together Bay Area philanthropy to advance the common good. Its members give over $3.5 billion. Previously, LaPointe served as vice president of strategic partnerships at Hope Lab, an operating foundation that focuses on technology-based approaches to promoting positive health behavior. And she began her career as a coordinator of the Brown University AIDS program, where she was involved in some of the earliest efforts to ensure access to promising experimental AIDS treatment and life-saving care. A native of Maine, LaPointe earned a BA from Brown and a JD from the University of California Berkeley School of Law. Full disclosure, Ellen and I go back a ways. She was on the board of a terrific LGBT political organization maybe a dozen years ago. It was struggling badly, and I was brought in to help with the turnaround. Ellen, I really appreciate you, your leadership, and thank you for making time to share this wild journey with listeners. It's rich with lessons. Glad you're here. 
Thank you, Joan. Thank you. It's great to be here. So first of all, let's hear about this dreamy new gig you got. What should listeners know about Fenway Health? Oh, thank you for that. Uh, Wonderful organization, 50 years old almost, based in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, It is a large uh, LGBTQIA-focused federally qualified health center that essentially exists to enhance the community uh, well-being. Uh, it offers, we offer medical and dental and optometry uh, services to LGBTQIA people and also people in our neighborhood. As you mentioned, about 33,000 people uh, are patients of Fenway Health. But it's also a uh, research institute that does leading edge research to answer important questions that LGBTQIA people are confronting in their health and well-being. Uh, we do advocacy work standing with and for our communities when uh, decisions that affect us are being made. Uh, And we have public health programming all over the region to make sure people have what they need uh, uh, in other spaces where they're particularly vulnerable, like housing and and, uh, such. Uh, Just for listeners to get a sense of scope, staff and budget size. The operating budget of the organization is just about $135 million annually, and we have just under 700 employees. Okay, so it's a big ship. It's a big place. Yes. Um, So I am recalling, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I just know it. I'm recalling that you flew east the Friday before day one, give or take. Right. Um, Where was COVID-19 on your radar screen on what I think would have been around the 5th of March? Yeah. So uh, certainly we were all, all of us, everyone was aware of this thing. Um, We were aware that community spread had started. I think um, anybody paying attention to the news was uh, on alert. That said, I I cannot say that it was at all clear to me uh, or anyone uh, in my orbit here at Fenway Health uh, just how quickly things were going to accelerate uh, only a few days after I got here. I mean, my wife and I spent the weekend in Boston running all over the place, going to cafes. We went to dinner with friends, you know, bought some stuff for the apartment, uh, I kissed her goodbye. She got on a plane on Saturday night. I said, I'll see you in a couple weeks. And Monday morning, I came into the office and uh, we canceled our event, that Saturday event you mentioned in the intro, uh, uh, in my third hour on the job. And uh, 12, 18 hours later, uh, at 7.30 the following morning, I found myself uh, leading the incident command team for the organization as we figured out uh, that this was going to change everything and we needed to get busy very quickly. I'm having some heart palpitation just listening to this story. Um, So let's go back a little bit first. Sure. Tell us a bit about how you planned for this new gig. I know you well enough to know that you plan well, um, that you, like many other people who go for the kinds of jobs you have, really want to be successful from day one. Um, so what did planning and preparation for this job look like for you? And, um, maybe a follow-up I'll throw Mm -hmm. in is in any kind of planning, could you have possibly prepared for this? (laughs) Uh, I'll just answer the second one first. No. (laughs) Uh, and now I'll go back to your first question. Okay. Uh, And then maybe I'll loop back. 
So, uh, yeah, I did spend quite a bit of time getting ready. I had about 14 weeks between the time I accepted the offer and the time that I started. And it was over the holidays, um, but I did uh, put a lot of effort into um, making sure if he said that I could hit the ground running, uh, it was an opportunity that I didn't want to squander. So what that looked like was um, making connections kind of at three levels. Um, in advance. So I spent some time, uh, there was an interim CEO who had been uh, here uh, for about a year prior to my arrival. She and I began meeting regularly uh, just to get clear on what the issues were from her perspective. I actually invited our leadership team here, the leadership, uh, the executive level folks to each send me a very short brief on uh, what they saw as the greatest opportunities and challenges from their perspective that we would need to confront together. Mm-hmm. I asked them for some advice on how I might make best use of my first couple, three months here. Um, I wanted to know what they needed from me. That was, that's thing. actually really smart because it actually, that's, that's typically how a lot of people spend their first week is an, asking and a, asking those questions, getting those answers, and then trying to sort of synthesize them. Yeah. But having yeah. gotten them ahead of time must have actually given you a leg up. That was great. Did the same thing at the board level with our board chair. Um, uh, not interviewing individual board members. I didn't go that far, but the board chair and I started reading, meeting regularly as well. And then I did um, some work. I actually, and I'll, uh, Joan, you were very helpful, just reaching out to my own networks to find folks who could connect me to community leaders here. I wanted to engage a little bit in advance in the community to just really understand, begin to understand the landscape here because I was coming to the job, but I'm also coming to a new place. A uh, new city I haven't lived in before, so it was important to me to be able to um, know who to turn to for guidance and advice from the get-go. So I did some of that work out in advance. I made a, you know, what I thought was a really great plan for how I was going to spend the first few months. I'm very proud of it. It's over there, untouched. Um, not really, but you know, it was it was thoughtful, and I I felt really clear on what I thought I should and could do as sort of the highest investors of my time for the first three, four months. And I had that in hand when I walked in the door as well. Do you think that um, having done that work helped? Or do you think to yourself, well, you know, it was great that I did that work. A lot of, a lot of freaking good it did. No, no, it's completely worth having. First of all, the um, Connections and rapport I developed with the leadership team and uh, board leadership and this community have are highly relevant and really were helpful. Those were established through the process we went through of getting that stuff together. I basically walked into the building with everybody knowing who I was that I needed to work with right away, and that was great. Um, and these plans are not for naught; they're just they're just delayed to a degree. I mean, there's some things that were on that list that um, we'll have to wait for sure. There were other things that were on that list that maybe were softer in my mind that are happening immediately through this process. And I mm-hmm. think that's something we can talk about a little bit is to sort of what is the, what are the relic, there are you know lots of challenges to dealing with a, a crisis like this right from the out at the outset, but there are also some really weird benefits that you couldn't design. You couldn't ask for them in a weird way, um, but they've been extremely helpful to me. So we're going to tackle, we're going to tackle yeah. those weird, uh, those those yeah. bizarre things. Yeah. And sure. when, when Ellen and I were prepping for this podcast, we got, um, I don't know, we got a little silly. And um, we opted to form uh, some of the topics, uh, either chapter titles in a nonprofit trashy novel or <laughs> headlines. So, um, um, so here's the first one. Uh, uh, Ellen calls this one, 
the one pot method, how a crisis can help you complete an organizational SWOT analysis in just days, strike that, hours. Um, so give us a quick quick look about how that works. What do you learn? Okay. I don't even have a one pot, by the way. I just hear everyone who has one raving about them. And what I understand is you put the food in, you press the button and the food is ready as soon as you press the button, something like that. <laughs> well, that's actually so, called an Instapot, actually. Oh, Instapot. Yes, that's what it is. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> This is Instapot. Yeah, you actually think about it and it's done. I think actually it it gets done in the refrigerator before you put the things in the pot. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. So that's, um, you know, and again, we're being silly and facetious. This has been very intense. And I want to say this with respect to everyone here. Um, This was not easy. And and, um, so having said that, we can return to our our silliness. But um, yeah, so this crisis, this that everyone has confronted in whatever environment we're in, you know, it, it immediately affords you the opportunity to see a great deal that you might not have been able to see for weeks or even months, if ever. Right. So where are we at our best in this organization? Where are we most nimble? Where are the bright spots? Where are the, um, where's the energy, right? Where's the, where's the kind of, um, where's the momentum and where are we building on that which is already working well? And then, of course, where are the frictions? Where are there gaps? One of the things we've been doing very, very carefully, actually, as we go through this process of the last seven weeks of just living through this now, is we've been actually capturing um, every time we see an opportunity to improve a system or a process here. So, so there's always something coming up that we have to address. These incident command meetings continue to happen daily at 7.30 every morning as we think about what we need to do here. Um, and we're looking always at opportunities to kind of improve things as we go. So that that just getting that insight is priceless, actually. How do we show up and support each other under stress? I mean, this is important culture and organizational well-being work to do. Um, that is not secondary to anything in, in a time like this. So how do we invest in that? Um, it's afforded me the opportunity to develop uh, a very strong and a deep working relationship with my leadership team um, right away. Right. Uh, none of the slow intro stuff. We're just in it. Same with the board. Um, and really, I've been uh, so delighted on both, both, both with the board and the senior leadership team here. It's just, you know, their capacity to really figure out that we need to focus on what matters uh, most and go there as a leadership team. And then finally, I think something I would say is this is a very large staff and it it will still take me quite some time to get to know these people. I'm very sad that I'm not able to meet these people in person right now. This has probably been the biggest loss yep. of this experience is I have not been able to see people face to face. It's almost exclusively been via Zoom almost immediately, literally. So I'm glad for that, of course, but... Um, with that said, there have been many, many, many opportunities for me to connect to the staff sort of as a whole and in groups uh, to talk about substantive matters, to talk about support stuff, to share my own experience and show up and connect. These kinds of things, again, I don't know that I could have invented a better way to do it if I tried. I, um, even though, again, it's, you know, you wouldn't, tough. you wouldn't, you wouldn't wish it on anybody. And but it is true that somebody comes in and there's been an interim, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and so there, and, 
and the organization has had some, you know, sort of challenges. Yeah. And a new person comes in and a leadership team uh, totally takes time to bond. And they and and when you walk in, everybody wants to tell you what they think needs to happen, and there tends to be a an anxiety that that makes a lot of the work sort of about who they are. But if you put if you put that group of people into a situation where they have to solve a crisis together, like all of that just gets parked, right? Yes. And, right, and then all of a sudden, you are a team of people that you lead that has dug out of something or is yeah. digging out of something. Right. So, this yeah. organization, you know, it's, it's really brought up, this crisis has brought out the best in this organization. And I, this is, I take zero credit for that. This organization has so much capacity and wherewithal and it's really showing now. It's, it, it, it gives me pause to think about how, <laughs> how could a new CEO replicate that without a crisis? I don't know the answer to that, but it made me think about that as we, as we were talking. Sure. All right, so here's the next headline. You ready? Mm. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, this headline is, uh, it simply can't be done. Strike that. It can be. And in three hours, it turns out. <laughs> now, this story is one of so many stories I hear about how organizations yeah. make what seem impossible come to life in no time flat through ingenuity, teamwork, and just sheer force of will. So I want you to listen, uh, my friends, as Ellen tells the story, because there are some treasures in it. And also, I think a little myth busting, uh, because yeah. after you hear the story, I don't think you'll ever say anymore, well, big organizations, they really move pretty slowly. Sure. So uh, uh, I'm going to focus uh, mostly on um, what we call the primary care side of things, the health center side, where we provide care to patients. So again, uh, we have other elements to our work and research and advocacy, but um, the place where we had to make immediate and dramatic shifts was in how we provided patient care. This is an airborne illness, uh, uh, and we needed to make sure that we were doing everything in our power to reduce community spread of COVID-19 as fast as we could. So while serving our mission, by the way, which is the driver for everything, right? So right. how can, the question was, how can we deliver what people expect of us impeccably as they, as we do um, in a completely new way and how fast can we pull that off? So, um, and by the way, and do that in compliance with all of the complex regulations that govern healthcare, which is, no small matter. So the first thing we did was we figured out, first of all, who we could immediately move off site. So who could we convert to a remote working arrangement um, without disrupting anything in terms of our operations, patient care wise. Um, but more significantly, and following right on the heels of that was um, uh, the effort to transfer or convert our work to telehealth, basically. So from direct hands-on care, that's face-to-face, where people come in the door and get taken care of by a dentist or an optometrist or a, a primary care provider uh, to uh, receiving some of that care, not all of it, we've been able to convert uh, via either video or telephone in a, in a way that, again, is um, what's called HIPAA compliance. So, you know, protects the privacy of patients as is required and does all the things we need to do. So, Alan, just a quick question. Yeah, sure. Had this organization talked about the possibility yeah. of doing telehealth and uh, 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 clearly, uh, sort of just curious about where it was on the radar screen as a sort of an initiative in general. 
Sure. And that's, I think that's part of the, the story here uh, that everyone's very proud of. So this had been something that um, uh, there were folks in the organization that had been working on, on this before. Okay. But, uh, but there was a general sense that to really do this carefully and thoughtfully and appropriately, it would take months, if not, you know, longer than that to really make it happen. And uh, as it turned out, uh, we really were able to do this in a matter of days. Um, what that required was uh, for, first of all, I think the most important thing it required was for everybody to let go of the idea that it couldn't be done. So that's a lesson. Just, just put that down. Just what would happen if you just didn't say that mm-hmm. and imagine that it can, right. And then move into a, what will it take mindset and then put the right people in the room to figure out the pieces that need to happen and then try it on. Mm-hmm. So Part of what I'll say here that I think is another lesson is that we didn't just roll the whole thing out in an hour. This was done in a stepwise fashion and very, very carefully with smaller groups and pilot groups. And then we kept figuring out, you know, where there were little gaps and things we needed to fix in the process to the point where only, you know, um, only when we were ready did we really sort of, if you will, throw the virtual doors wide open. And we're now in that place. But that conversion was quick. I can tell you that the outcome now is that we have now uh, 75% of our staff is working remotely and 95% of our care is happening via telehealth now. So there's a, there's a skeptical part of me that says, do you think that it always needed to take months and months? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think what I, what's true about this crisis is there has been a relaxing of some of the regulatory environment and, uh-huh. the, and, the, and the payer stuff. That, you know, I think part of what we're all trying to think ahead about now is what are we learning here about what we can do? How do we want to integrate this very, very helpful practice into our work on a go forward basis? Um, How are we going to advocate hard to um, retain our capacity to do this and get paid for it if we need to? If there's any effort to pull back on this, we don't know what's coming, but we imagine there might be advocacy work to be done. And um, certainly no one is uh, envisioning that we'll ever just be an organization that does telehealth. Right. But we are absolutely assuming and hoping that we'll be able to integrate telehealth more comprehensively into what we do going forward. And I think there's a lot of great questions we'll need to answer for that. So there's two, uh, there's really two things to tease out of, many things to tease out of what you said, but the word pilot sticks out for me. Yeah. Um, uh, Kathleen Kelly Janis, who is a uh, author out of Stanford, now works in the governor's office out there, wrote a book called Social Startup Success. I know her well. Yeah, yeah. I do. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I like her a lot, actually. Me too. Um, and she studied about 200 different organizations that were small in budget size and stuck yeah. and stuck and tried to tease out what made them unstick. And one of them was... Um, uh, folks that were willing to try new things and pilot them. Yeah. And um, if I could wave my magic wand and put something into the nonprofit sector waters, that's one thing I would drop in. And I would, and we're seeing it more than we've ever seen it before. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so, you know, that's, that's one thing. And I'm, then I just think, I just think that the sector is, never going to do business the same way again. If we're, if we're smart, if we're smart, right. right? If like, anytime I hear like 
well, I can't wait till we get back to normal. Right. You know, normal wasn't really working all that well for some nonprofit organizations. And some of these fundamental changes like nimble and, and, and innovation and creativity, those things are, um, they're going to be treasures yep. when we get to the other side. We've been saying here, uh, we'll never be the same. And that's, that's a good thing. So the next uh, headline, Mm. communicate, 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 Zoom, cups and string, COVID (laughs) negative pigeons, whatever it takes. Yes. So um, here you have folks working remotely, a telehealth program, people who, as, as I've talked to a lot of my clients, I just say, you have to behave as if your team has just all been diagnosed with chronic anxiety disorder. That's right? exactly right. They're, they're mm-hmm. terrified human beings. And you have a big organization with multiple locations. And um, what do you think you've done well here? And then I want you to tell, uh, I want you to tell the story. I'll, I'll ask you to tell me the story about, um, about the priest and the therapist. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, great. I will. Uh, let's see. So uh, uh, the organization, um, has been really committed to, um, you know, infusing a communications kind of mindset and lens lens into everything we do. So for example, these incident command meetings every morning, the last question we ask ourselves before we leave the room is what needs to be communicated out and to whom and by whom. And we try to answer that question with specificity every morning. Sometimes that's as simple as, oh, I'll let Amy know that we had this conversation. Uh, and sometimes it's as complicated as uh, we need to do an all staff email to make a major announcement or um, Ellen, you need to do uh, communication to the board about this thing. Um, so, you know, it, it, it varies. My own view has always been uh, that in, it's sort of a truism in the space. You know, you can't communicate too often or too many times, too, too many different ways. Like people learn and they absorb differently. So yep. one of the things I'm actually very happy that's happening here is we are using multifaceted approaches to how, how we convey information. So there are all staff emails that go out and they are, you know, they have paragraphs and words and they are <laughs> dense and there's a lot in them and that's okay. Right. Um, we have uh, we have a dedicated COVID nineteen webpage just for our staff, where we put important information that people need to either know or um, or places they can go when they need some kind of a resource. We do communications with our external community via blog posts and uh, some targeted emails. There, we have all staff monthly. Zoom meetings, we are actually able to do Zoom. I mean, this Zoom thing is insane. Uh, it's so good. The uh, 350 people will participate in an all-staff Zoom meeting where we can convey information that way. Right. And then, um, of course, we have meetings and such and the like. So that's, oh, and I, that's it. We do, uh, I do a Friday afternoon video. So I, it's a very informal thing. I just got in the habit. I didn't really plan it. It just sort of evolved. But every Friday around two o'clock, I just think, hmm, how do I feel about the week I just had? And what might that tell me about the energy of this place and what, what might just need to get be said today so that we're all uh, on the same page and naming it? That's not a time to convey information. It's just more to really connect and support people and to show up and be present to the fact that this is super hard and we are all in it together and we're going to get through it. The Friday afternoon videos, I've seen a couple of them. Um, 
one of them, and I've had this kind of, how CEOs and executive directors are communicating now is a, a source of endless fascination to me. And I have actually sitting on my desk, I have stacks of aforementioned emails that varying clients have sent out to their teams and different things that people are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and one CEO said to me, you know, I... Um, I sent one out last week and it was lots less about tasks and what was happening. And it was more about what was happening at my house and how my daughter and her boyfriend are living with us and they're learning how to cook. And that that's, that there's something really nice about that. And she, it it felt like such a big aha for her. But um, for me, it was like, uh, we call that, we call that vulnerability their nonprofit Mm. leader, is that people want to hear from you about what's going on for you. So for example, you left your family, you were supposed to see them and now you can't. And you actually, I think in one of those Friday afternoon videos, you shared that. And that's not a superfluous thing. It's not an oh, by the way thing. It is important for people who are being led by someone to know who that person is. Yeah, I think that's something I I grappled with that. Actually, it's true. I have not seen them since. So I haven't seen my son since March 2nd. And I haven't seen my wife since March 7th. Um, And we're okay. And I, you know, we're okay. But uh, it's not what any of us had in mind or planned. Um, I wasn't sure if that was something I should share. But I did, I kind of reached the same conclusion that you just sort of conveyed, which is, it's a big thing about my life that's challenging to me. And this is my particular struggle in COVID-19. Everyone has a struggle in COVID-19. Every one of us has it. And I just, I felt it might be helpful to share um, mine just as a way of bringing to life the kinds of things that people are grappling with over and above, you know, illness, which is not even, that's its own thing, of course. Um, this is hard stuff. I think the the vulnerability thing is also deeply connected to authenticity and the uh, authenticity in leadership is, um, is, is totally critical to getting hard work done. Um, We are talking to Ellen LaPointe and Ellen LaPointe is the relatively new, (laughs) probably feels like a veteran now, CEO. Well, in COVID years, it's like 20 years. Ellen is the CEO, the relatively brand new CEO of the Fen- of Fenway Health. Uh, she has uh, had numerous leadership roles in the nonprofit and public health sectors, working in social justice, research, LGBTQ, HIV activism, and advocacy, health policy, law and equity over the last three decades. And she Flew east on March 5th to take a new job as a CEO of a federally qualified health center in the LGBTQIA community and um, thought she'd have her hands full. And she was more than right. Uh, Here's the next headline for you, Ellen. Onboarding 101, three things you really need to do at the beginning, no matter what. Yeah. Do you remember what they were? I do. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um. I don't even think onboarding is the right word for what this has been like, <laughs> but I will say, you know, it happens one way or the other, you know, something you're like trial by fire or something. Else. Something, something. Anyway. There's all kinds of places we could go. But I would say that it, it does distill to really, uh, it, that is no different. Like the fact that I came in at this moment is really no, di- what I would say are, is the same as if it hadn't happened, um, which is, you know, the first, your first job is to meet people, meet your people. 
um, find out who you need to know and who needs to know you. And those may or may not always be entirely the same people in an organization. Um, find ways to make um, authentic connections to them. Find ways to establish yourself. That's the second thing. So, you know, what is your what is your style? How are you going to give people a sense of kind of how you approach things? Um, you know, this has, again, been one of those situations where I didn't have to come up with anything. It's just <laughs> happening. <laughs> yeah, I, really, there was no plan necessary there. You uh, established no. yourself in pretty short order by circumstance. Right. So at the leadership level, but also at the staff level broadly, um, those are distinct things. And then um, find your supports. So that's really... Again, that's kind of, I can't operate, I've never been able to be successful or even functional, frankly, um, without surrounding myself with people to support me. So one of the things I did, um, if I can just share this, Joan, is I uh, I hired a great coach who happens to be uh, on the other side of this microphone right now. I've been working with Joan to help uh, give me a place to be, to think through things that are hard. That does not have to be someone as amazing as Joan, um, but it, it really is important f- to have somebody in your life that you can talk to kind of as a peer to just work out things as they go. And it's um, not, um, th- thanks for the comment. I, I also just think, um, A, there's no sign of weakness nor self-indulgence in saying, I need a thought partner. And, right. um, and there are so many good people out there who do this kind of work and yes. um, finding someone who's a good fit for you, uh, it, it can be a real gift. And if you can't pay one, find a peer and right. create a system where you can check in as often as you need to. I think, you know, I, I know I've worked in nonprofits where this is not a possibility. And I think, especially in times like this, it may feel like an unachievable thing to hire anybody. But I think we all have peers we can turn to where you can create a space where you can sort of say anything or ask anything. And that's been critical for me. I do that informally as well. And it's really, um, you know, in addition to personal supports, the professional ones. I did want to get back to the um, the priest and the therapist. I, yeah, I was just going to say, um, I we didn't we didn't pick up on one of my very favorite communication strategies. And a lot of people are doing kind of um, you know coffee chats where they open a Zoom room and you do a cup of coffee together or a happy hour. Yeah, uh, I, I actually think yours wins the prize if if for <laughs> no other reason than what it's called. Well, that's an informal name for it, but it is, we uh, informally call it a priest and a therapist walk into a bar. And what it is, is uh, our uh, chief compliance officer and our chief of staff here um, uh, are a member of clergy and the therapist, respectively. And they do The chief compliance officer Mm -hmm. is a member of the clergy. I love that. Absolutely magnificent. And uh, they bring... Uh, an informal convening together every Monday at noon and every Thursday at five. It's a drop-in Zoom gathering, 30 minutes long for people to just come together. It opens with a reading. It closes with a meditation. And in between, it's just open chat space uh, to talk about how we're taking care of ourselves and how we're getting through. And it's a way to connect. It's a way to see each other. Um, it is attended by folks sort of throughout the organization, sort of in every, every, every aspect of the work is represented in different ways, different groups every time. But it's just a really wonderful way. The one rule is um, we don't exchange information. Uh-huh. Like this is not the place to convey official information or talk about a, a, a specific problem. Um, because A, it's meant to be a space for something different. And B, because it's 
not inclusive of everybody. And so it's not the right place to convey that information. Makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I, um, so I have a, a team of about 12 people and I've, so I, you know, I'm often convinced that I learn way more than I um, offer in terms of advice and counsel and listening to my clients talk about how they take care of their teams has been yeah. really inspiring to me. I'm working with a client who, it's actually funny, I'm working with a client um, who is a minister who decided he didn't really want to minister. He wanted to be a nonprofit CEO. And one of the goals of our coaching together is that he wanted to sort of try to figure out how to be a nonprofit leader and manager and not so much a minister who was, you know, the pastor mm -hmm. of a flock. Mm -hmm. We've actually taken that goal off of his list because <laughs> it turns out that being a pastor of a flock is like, the perfect thing for him to be right about yeah. now as it relates to his team. But he, he, uh, he made me realize I, I, so I have a 90 minute every couple of weeks that 12 of us get together. And, um, the last time we met, I, um, I just opened by saying, uh, I want everybody to answer the question. Things for you personally are mm -hmm. however they wanted to. And at first I thought, Oh my gosh, this is going to go. This is going to go on for a long time. And it ended up being about 30 or 35 minutes of the 90 minutes. And it probably was the most valuable piece of it. Yeah. 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 So I, I think this, um, I have another client who basically said, I, I think I need to learn to be more patient because I, I'm spending more time on the phone with my leadership team. And um, I, I said, yeah, I think, I think maybe you need, you need to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so it's, well, it's, it's support for me. It's what well, the thing I wanted to offer is it's, it's for me as well. I was, I'm really appreciating being uh, just a participant in that. I don't yeah. run it. I just am part of it. Yep. Well, and that's another piece is right. Is to show the leaders to show up where they're not, where they're not owning the room is also mm -hmm. another different kind of leadership, isn't it? Um, so I want to leave listeners with um, speaking of leadership. Uh, before you left the West Coast, mm. um, before you left Northern California Grant Makers, you wrote a really nice piece that I liked a lot. And um, you shared with uh, with the Northern California Grant Makers family some of the leadership lessons that you've learned over the years. And um, it's, it's quite a long, it's a, it's a good solid list, but I was hoping maybe you could share, you know, four or five of them kind of rapid fire for everyone that they can sort of take away as, um, as we kind of close out our conversation today. Sure. Sure. I'd be happy to. Well, let's see. I think the first thing I would always say is that, you know, a good leader learns how to ask good questions. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, for better, for worse, uh, if, if I work with you, you're going to just get a ton of questions. It's really what I do all the time. And it's not, Every, we're not talking about why the hell didn't you do that? That's not a interrogation. No. That's different, Joan. <laughs> <laughs> Just questions, curiosity. Really Can you tell me more about that? Listening to understand, as they say. Okay. Uh, Duly noted. Um, yeah. So asking a lot of good questions is a really key thing. Um, making an effort to really see and hear people. Um, understanding um, who you are with and what is the unique perspective? Uh, what is the unique lived experience? What is the knowledge that any given person in the room has to contribute to the conversation? I think that 
gives us, first of all, it makes for a the right conversation. It makes sure we have a, a, a very three-dimensional experience in terms of what we are thinking about. But it's also a profound way to see and hear people. Everybody deserves and wants to be seen and heard. And this is this is the way to do it, is to pay attention to what they're bringing to the table. Um, ask for guidance. This, and there's sort of a, there's a counterpart to that, which is um, practice saying I was wrong. So both of these things, um, you know, we all need advice. We all need guidance. And we all need to be able to own up when we didn't get it right. And I think the, the thing about that as a leader is, again, it's only going to make your thinking stronger and better, but it's also just a, it's humility, which is, I think, a really key characteristic of good leaders. There's a um, a podcast I did with the person who does sort of talent. She's a COO, but I, I think her real role was kind of building the team at Charity Water. Uh-huh. And they have, um, when they look for people, there's an attribute that they look for that I really like that, f- that falls into this category. It's called humble confidence. Because people who have jobs like this are confident. They wouldn't actually apply for them otherwise, right? Right. They may have doses of imposter syndrome, as I mentioned earlier, but for the most part, people who take these jobs are type A, high-performing people who are very good at what they do, and they kind of know it. And um, that's the confidence piece. The humility piece is what separates the good ones from the great ones. Yeah, which is different from humble brag, right? Which yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> the last time I saw Elizabeth Taylor, um, Whoops, anyway. So, uh, and the last one I would just offer, which I think is maybe the one of the bigger ones, uh, is just learning to tolerate it when someone's unhappy with the decision you're making. It is pretty much par for the course in any kind of a role like this that you're going to decide things that are going to make some group of people unhappy. I mean. It's almost always true that someone's going to be less than satisfied with a with a path or a course. So um, it's important to be engaging in processes that are rigorous enough that you can really stand behind your decisions and then just hold space for people when they are letting you know that they're unhappy. That, by the way, is also a way to see and hear people is to just understand and receive that they are un- un- not happy. I make a joke about this. It's um, in no way uh, to compare um, our colleagues to children, but I, the pro tip here is to have a kid. For me, you know, it just, when I, you know, had to learn over and over again that even though my son didn't want to do something, it was my job to, to, to make it happen for him. This is not the same as, it's not paternalistic, but it's the same thing where you just, it's an internal experience of just tolerating how it feels to have someone unhappy um, uh, you know, as long as you're grounded in, in good thinking and process and really sure that it's the right path and consistent with your values and your integrity, then, then you'll be okay. Um, so speaking of your son, uh, is he in his senior year of high school? He's, he's just, this is the end of his junior year. End of his junior year. And so, um, uh, tough time, tough time to, um, to move East and, uh, and leave him, leave him behind. The thing you asked this at the beginning, you know, could anyone have foreseen this? The one thing none of us ever, ever considered is, would be that we couldn't fly. Right. It just never would have crossed. I would have predicted a car accident before I predicted not being able to fly. It's been uh, really astonishing to have that assumption fall through. And, you know, again, I'm grateful for technology and we're all well and safe. So I just keep bringing myself back there and I know we're going to get through it. And tell but me about... Hard. But then tell me about the family at uh, at Fenway. Um, 
yeah. that gr- that larger group of people could not be untouched by this. Oh no, there have been uh, many direct impacts, um, independent of the um, the stress and anxiety that we're all experiencing. Every one of us here and everywhere of kind of having to adapt to this new world we're living in. Um, we certainly have staff who have uh, members of their family who have been sick and died. We've had patients who become ill and died. Um, we've had a, a few staff who've been exposed be, uh, in di- different different ways. It's um, you know it's it's a constant for us here and everywhere. Again, I don't think we're unique in this regard. Um, you know, how are we taking steps to keep ourselves and each other safe, and how are we taking care of our hearts and bodies and souls <laughs> as we try to just take it one day at a time? I um I wanted to ask this earlier. Uh, I was going to leave it right where you just said it, but I just can't help myself. Sure. Um, y- you in your work uh, have uh, a fair number of patients who are immuno- immunocompromised due to That's HIV. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, more at risk for COVID nineteen than the than the general population. I have also read and learned through my friends at AMFAR, that there are some real um, kind of parallels. Oh, sure. Uh, and wondered, knowing that you are also not just in the patient care business, although that and yes. alone would be enough, but are also leaders on the research front as well. Just wondered if um, any closing comments for those of us looking for hopeful signs, any breaks in the clouds here, sort of on the research front, the connections between COVID-19 and HIV and sort of what, what, if anything, the community has to offer scientists and researchers as they are contending with, uh, you know, whether it's treatments or vaccines. Sure. Thank you for that. Um, So one of the things I'm most proud of uh, here right now is just how laser-focused Fenway Health has been, again, on uh, the particular communities that we are focused on, the LGBTQIA community and the HIV-positive community. Uh, These and others who have illness and who are older are at higher risk for greater harm from COVID. It's not your higher risk for acquiring it. It's just that you're higher risk for getting hurt. So we've been focused on making sure that we get information out to our patients and to our community about how to take steps to protect themselves um, we've been re- uh, releasing guides and uh, briefs and doing advocacy work. And uh, we we're just successful, for example, in persuading uh, with others, the uh, government, the Massachusetts, um, to start tracking um, LGBTQIA status and HIV status as a means of tracking if this epidemic wasn't being tracked. So that kind of thing is really critical for us to uh, be able to track, so to pay attention to what's going to what, what our unique circumstances are and what the harms are that we're particularly vulnerable to. To your question around the research and sort of the, the legacy and of, of really coming from the AIDS crisis 35 years ago, almost 40 years ago now, my goodness, um, you know, as we describe it, we, we all helped write the book on how to respond effectively yep. in a crisis. And I think um, uh, we have been, uh, the fact that we've been able to pivot so effectively and move into um, both firm real world support and also, um, um, you know, being planful and anticipating what might be coming. Um, and then even activating, um, I think will be happening more and more existing 
ways of doing research in the community that were pioneered from in the days of AIDS yes. that now are going to be available to us in this new environment um, is something about which I think we can all be proud. And it's going to give us a faster track to a solution, I believe, ultimately, um, because of it. Now, whether we can actually find the right, the right solution is unknown. You know, how long that's going to take is anyone's guess. But I think the fact that we have these structures in place is um, a gift to everyone right now. Um, indeed. So I'm going to use the word gift and close us out by saying um, that Fenway has been a gift, not just to the Boston community, but to just globally as well. And I guess I just also wanted to say that, um, you know, I have uh, held position of leadership in the LGBT community and know how hard the jobs are, know how important they are. Um, so I speak as somebody who has a lot of skin in the game, not just for my own, uh, my own self and my wife, but my daughter who lives up in Salem, Massachusetts with the witches, mm-hmm. <laughs> the lesbians and the witches, I think, um, so we have a lot of skin in the game and it is because of leaders like you that we have a lot of hope that, um, uh, uh, yeah, that the world will one day be a completely fair and equitable place for us and way safe. We take a lot of hope and a lot of pride in knowing that people like you are at the helm of organizations of the caliber and um, quality of Fenway. So thank, thank you, you very it's, much. I feel grateful and proud to be a part of this organization. It is a blessing. So I well, appreciate that. Sounds like the roads run in both ways. Okay. Ellen LaPointe from Fenway is here with us. Thank you so much for joining us. And you, uh, take care. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you found the conversation to be valuable. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe to it. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave us a review. Turns out that reviews really matter. They help people discover the podcast. <laughs> and if there's anything in this episode or any episode that really struck you as an aha moment, we'd love to know. Shoot us an email at podcast at joangary.com. And if you'd like to learn more about nonprofit leadership, head on over to my website at joangary.com. That's J-O-A-N-G-A-R-R-Y.com. It's full of advice and resources that you can put into action right away. And make sure to enter your email address so I can send you a surprise I think you'll find helpful. And if I haven't said it lately, thank you. Thank you so much for the important work you do every day to make this world a better place. I'll see you next time.